You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. Today we are in 2 Thessalonians and at the beginning chapter verse chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. So let me pray for us for the ministry of the word. Oh Lord, thank you for already meeting us so kindly, Lord. Just turning, it's amazing, Lord. We don't have to have all the answers. But just like what you did with Job, you turned his eyes to you at the end of the book. And it was enough. It was enough. To see how great and grand and good you are was enough. Lord, thank you for doing that even this morning to us. Lord, through the songs we have sung, the prayers that have been prayed, the scripture that has been read, already turning our eyes to you, Lord, and it is enough. Thank you. Lord, may you continue doing that good work of making yourself known to your people today, that their hearts would be glad in you, that they would be full, Lord, as they feed upon you, Lord, upon your word and your goodness, and may their hearts be glad in you. And Lord, for those who maybe are even gathered with us that don't know you, Lord, we pray that as they hear sermon after sermon, Lord, would you, by the power of your spirit, would you apply the gospel truth and gospel life to their hearts and minds and awaken them, impart faith to them to believe and to know you. Lord, we pray for those precious saints who are unable to be here, whether they're sick or have had even family members pass away. Lord, we pray that you would be with our precious brothers and sisters, that you would feed them, encourage them, strengthen them. And Lord, we pray, we join in with our brother Paul as he has prayed so much through the first letter of Thessalonians. Lord, we pray that we would be together soon. Lord, be together to encourage and strengthen one another on in you. Lord, take your word now. Take your word through a weak vessel and may you shine. May you be exalted and may the hearts of your people be full with you, Lord. Be exalted now. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church says, amen. Amen. Follow along with me as I read God's word. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, In God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, We ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Have you ever been at a point in your life where you feel like you're just in the middle of a war? Maybe now, maybe currently, or or maybe just thinking back recently. Have you ever felt like you're just in the middle of a war? Life is hard. Circumstances are difficult. Energy is low. Doubts are high. It seems as if everywhere you turn, you take another hit. 
you're trying to lean into a good daily devotional time with the Lord in his word and in prayer. You want to grow and be faithful, but it just feels like you're stuck in the mud. Feels like you're stuck. You're reading Isaiah 40, 31, but you don't necessarily feel like you're soaring on wings of eagles. You're just plodding through the mud in the pits and the foxholes of the war-torn battle lines. Your vision feels as if it's become clouded. It's just hard to even see. It's hard to identify what good God is doing. And it can feel as if the questions of life far outweigh the certainties of life. The questions feel bigger. They loom larger almost than the certainties and the things you actually know. You just, you just sort of feel like a cold, war-torn Christian. And all you really need, you think or want, is a faithful friend to come alongside you and bring a warm word of comfort. Have you ever felt like that? I, I have. It's okay to say if we have. That's okay. If you have ever felt like that, I think you're in good company. I think you're in good company. I think Christians throughout church history can share with you in having had to walk through hard seasons like that. And I think specifically a season like that would rightly describe the church in Thessalonica. I think that would rightly describe this church. They are a war-torn church who needed someone to come alongside them and encourage them and then teach them and then encourage them some more. (laughs) Encourage, teach, and encourage some more to help remind them who they are in God and what he has done and will do. That is what Paul is aiming to accomplish in this little letter. I think it's what he was aiming to accomplish in the first letter. And I think it's what he's accomplishing in the second letter, though he goes into more detail into some specific areas. But he is coming alongside war-torn, battle-weary Christians who are in the cold of battle to bring them a warm word of comfort. Over the last uh, several months, as we've walked through First Thessalonians, we have become well acquainted with this church. But if you remember... This was a church birthed in a city, so birthed in Thessalonica, birthed in a city that rose up against the gospel that was being proclaimed. They were rising up, pagans, both pagans and Jews. So the non-religious and the religious people began to rise up against the gospel that was being proclaimed and essentially running Christians out of town, afflicting them. Paul, Silas, which is also Silvanus, Silas, and Timothy were run out of town after just a few weeks of doing gospel ministry in the city. So they're run out of town. This city hates Christians. It's clear. And if given the chance, they would probably even kill these Christians. In fact, from what we can read, it seems like that's probably what was happening. Christians are being killed in this city. So by the time Paul writes the second letter to them, it seems that there are still very real difficulties happening in the life of the church. Very real difficulties 
and even false teachers who are coming in and trying to scare the church or are striking fear within the church body in regards to the second coming of Christ. So there's a battle kind of within and without within this church family. And so to begin his second letter, Paul, right away, under the inspiration of God, is writing to show the church then and now this simple yet life-giving truth. I think this is what we'll see today. That despite your circumstances, if you belong to God, you can rest assured that you are being kept in God and God himself will keep working in you to bring about his good and glorious pleasure. His good and glorious purposes and pleasure for your life. You can rest assured despite your circumstance. I think that's kind of what we're going to see today. Paul is going to show them this specific truth by reminding them of their new identity that they have. They're a new people. He's going to remind them of who they are, their identity. He's going to point them to their source of sustainment. He's going to model to them giving thanks in all circumstances, something he called them to do in the first letter. And he is going to celebrate their perseverance by also celebrating God's persevering faithfulness. He's going to do all of that. And that is meant to assure the church. It's meant to comfort the church, to steady the church, to steady you to comfort you, to assure your hearts. It was meant to do that for the Thessalonian church and it's meant to do that for us today. The application is the same. We are meant to be comforted and assured and steadied in these particular truths. So so Paul, as he gives encouragement to a war-torn Christian group, a war-torn church, the Lord has intended for us to receive encouragement as well from his word. So as we look at this, you're going to see Paul is a master encourager by the grace of God, master encourager. And and so we both are to receive the encouragement he's giving, but also learn from it. We're to learn as we observe how he encourages the church, the truth that he reminds them in. We are to, to gain from that and to live life in that same way. So both receive the encouragement, and then grow in being encouragers as we hear and see our brother Paul encourage the church. So first thing we see in this passage is Paul reminds the church of their new identity, their new identity. Paul begins this letter with a strategic and very mindful words. He says, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, now, there, there is so much <laughs> packed into this one sentence. I really actually wrestled with, okay, should I just do the first and second verse today, this Sunday? There's so much. There is so much packed into this one line. And normally we skip over these introduction lines, don't we? When we're in our normal reading time, we just kind of fly through it. Oh, if you were to do that with this one, you would, you would miss big incredible identity forming truths. Oh man. Oh man. So Paul knows that when we endure difficult circumstances, especially for prolonged periods of time, 
often what comes under attack and what comes into question is our identity. Our identity in the midst of trial often is what comes under question or under attack. We can begin to question who we are and who we are in relation to God and even God's relational identity to me or to us. Questions like this, I think, often arise. Am I truly loved by God in this? Right? That's questioning identity and character. Am I loved by God as I go through this? Questions like, is God really accomplishing good for me in this? Is God really bringing himself glory in my life through this? Or is God punishing me? That's identity. Am I one who's in relationship to God where I am being punished by this? Am I still considered a rebel? And so God is pouring out judgment upon me? I think lots of us ask those types of questions when we're going through prolonged periods of difficulty. Here's the truth. Apart from Christ... We are described in the scriptures as being slaves to sin, right? Rebels opposed to God and like sheep without a shepherd who are wandering alone around the world, alone, aimless and helpless. That is a reality apart from Christ. But, but if by the grace of God, you have been brought to saving faith through the person and work of Jesus and welcomed into the family of Christ then despite what you feel, being a wandering rebel sheep deserving of God's punishment is just not true of you anymore. That's not who you are anymore in Christ. You're not a wandering, lonely, alone, helpless sheep, rebel sheep. You're not wandering alone, aimless and helpless. It's who you once were. But it's not who you are now in Christ. Apart from Christ, it's who you still are. A wandering, helpless, harassed, little rebel sheep. But in Christ, that's not who you are anymore. So look at this sentence. Look at this sentence. Paul no longer identifies them merely as Thessalonians. Look what he says. They are the church of the Thessalonians. To to be the church, the the ecclesia of God, is to be God's set-apart people. His, His called out ones, called out of the assembly of the world, and called into and gathered into the assembly of God's people. The church. That's what the church is. Church is God's called out and gathered and assembled people. That's the church. The, mo- the most important thing about them is not that they are Thessalonians anymore, but the church of God. They belong to a very special and important and beloved people. God's people, God's kingdom people, they are the 
church, but it's more than just an identifying title. It's more than just an identifying title. It's the position in which they live. They are the church of the Thessalonians. And where does he say? What's the positional statement he uses? In God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know if you've been here, as we've gone through First Thessalonians, you know, that's not the first time Paul has used language like this. We heard him do that in First Thessalonians. But here's the deal. He's repeatedly visiting this truth. And why? Because the church needs to constantly be reminded of this truth. Maybe even starting off just now, as you're hearing me emphasize the church, maybe you're kind of like, okay, that seems simple enough. You know, it doesn't really land on you. And I think that's why we got to keep being reminded of this. Because then what happens whenever that, doesn't, that truth doesn't land on you is whenever you start going through difficulty that's really earth-shaking difficulty and soul-shaking difficulty, the foundational truths that God has given you to study your life are not there. These are foundational, big, important, sturdying truths for the Christian. May God cause them to land and be rooted within our hearts and to be glad out of it. So Paul is repeatedly visiting this because the church constantly needs to be reminded of this. Remember, Paul typically begins his letters by saying to the church in, and then he says whatever city they're in. But for this church, For this church, they are in such need of remembering their identity in the midst of the trouble they're experiencing. This church is not just a church positionally in a city, living and breathing and working and finding their sense of comfort or satisfaction or provision or peace or identity in and of the city in which they live. They are no longer just that. Remember, the Roman culture, we talked about this previously in First Thessalonians, they had the Pax Romana. Do you remember that? The Roman peace. And so it was this idea that where do you come to find peace? You come to Rome. You come and live in a city of Rome. And so there was a lot of pride and a lot of sense of identity and comfort and peace and provision that they purposefully wanted you to find in Rome. That's what we want you to, so that you become Romans and you support the Roman society. That's what we want. And this church is being birthed out of that identity. I think often how we can easily be, right? If you're from San Antonio or you live in San Antonio, we love being San Antonians, don't we? We love it. We love our fiesta colors and our, all, all, our spurs. We identify with those things. We are so easy to identify ourselves in simple things like that. Right here, these are identifying, reorienting, re-identifying statements that Paul is giving them. For the Christian, all throughout Scripture, God is identified as the strong tower and mighty fortress in which God's people hide away and find their source of shelter and well-being and care and comfort and peace and resources to live in order to live a faithful life. So for the Christian, the most important thing about us is not where we positionally live on a map 
whether you live on the south side or the north side or you're in San Antonio or whatever, or where you're from, even whether you're a U.S. citizen or not a U.S. citizen, that is not the most important thing about you. For the Christian, the most important thing is that now we live life in the strong tower of God himself. That is the most important thing. We live life in God the Father himself and the caring castle. I just you Imagine that, the caring castle of Christ himself. No matter how you feel today, that is the position of the Christian. You are living and breathing and doing all of, of life as one that is kept in God. Oh my, let that sink in for a second. Let that just wash over you. I'm not just in this city all alone doing my thing. I am found in God. The strong tower and mighty fortress of the universe. But it's even more. It's even more than a positional identity. It's a relational family. Paul highlights God as our father. He's not just a father or the father. He is our father. And then God the son as this this three name title, the Lord Jesus Christ, who who in other parts of scripture is identified as our elder brother. He, He is Jesus the Christ, the set apart and anointed savior. And he is Lord. He is king of God's people. You you may be going through incredibly challenging circumstances, but Paul takes our eyes off of the circumstances and helps us see what an incredibly great family by grace we have been brought into. We have a faithful father who treats us as as precious sons and daughters and a caring king who treats us as beloved brothers and sisters. Our God is not cold to us then. Our God is not cold to us. He is not far off. He is not absent of our trouble. He does not grow weary of caring for you. He doesn't grow impatient in dealing with you. He will not abandon you. You will not go unloved or cast aside. For he is our good and faithful father. And the son is our good and faithful king. Just a couple weeks ago, we sang this song and I couldn't help have these words come to mind as I was working on the sermon. We sing these words and and these words flow out of the, the identity of God towards us as father and king, as he loves his people. Be reminded of these words. Those he saves are his delight, precious in his holy sight. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. 
Why will he hold you fast? Why will he keep on holding on to you? Because you're his precious blood-bought people. And he considers you like the good father he is as his children. Hudson Taylor, who was an old missionary. I love reading and learning and, and just eating up old missionaries and learning about them. And I asked the Lord, compel my heart with their heart. Lord, give me the heart that they have to go, to go. So I hope you can join in on that. Hudson Taylor, if you've never heard of him, look him up, learn about him. He's a missionary to China. Listen to what he said. Lived in the 1800s. He says, I am taking my children with me. And I notice that it is not difficult for me. I'm sorry. I just remember, just reminded part of his story is walking up a hill with his daughter and his daughter praying for this lost Muslim man. And then, and then they get up to the hill and she passed away. I am taking my children with me. And I noticed that it is not too difficult for me to remember that the little ones need breakfast in the morning, dinner at midday, and something before they go to bed at night. Indeed, I could not forget it. And I find it impossible to suppose that our Heavenly Father is less tender or mindful than I. I do not believe that our Heavenly Father will ever forget His children. I am as a very poor father, but it is not my habit to forget my children. God is a very, very good father. It is not his habit to forget his children. In trial, one of the most steadying and comforting truths for the Christian is their identity wrapped up in being a part of the family of God. Paul will use the word for brothers and sisters, Adelphos, eight more times just in this little three-chapter letter. They are not alone and are a part of a people who are united together, living life in the kingship of Christ the Son and the fatherhood of God. In the midst of trial, they are to be comforted and captivated by the reality of their personal and loving relationship with the God of the universe and his people. Are you comforted and captivated by just the simple reality of who God is and that you've been brought into his family? Are you amazed that a sinner like me would be welcomed in by a holy God like him and counted righteous by his own doing and then made a son or a daughter? How could that be? That's what ignites the heart of the Christian in the midst of trial and difficulty. It's what ignites our worship. We're not trying to like muster people up. Like, come on, just get up on your feet. I see that too much. Just yesterday I saw something. Man, pastors are trying to be hype men way too much. 
The Lord doesn't need me to hype him up. Just show you who he is and trust the Spirit to ignite your heart in praise to him. That's what we need. That's what we need, precious saints. These truths to anchor and be your foundation that will ignite your worship and will sustain you when it's hard. Paul builds upon these truths in verse 2 as he points the church to their source of sustainment. Their source of sustainment. He says in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When, When Paul expresses this desire for grace and peace to come upon them. It's, it's a gigantic expression of a desire for wholeness and goodness upon them that is only found in God himself. That flowing from him and out of God to them would be their life sustainment in the midst of life's troubles. The word for peace is the Greek version of the Hebrew word shalom. Several of you men got to talk about that. We have what we call a men's um, leadership cohort, men who are leading or men who aspire to lead in the church, mem- uh, men who are members of the church who are being trained up throughout the week on, on Wednesday mornings, early 530 in the morning where we pray together. We are going into the word together to train up and equip men who are going to be leading in the church. We talked about this this past week, didn't we? Shalom, balance, perfect balance, perfect peace, this wholeness of God. It's all throughout the scripture. What happened at the fall in the first garden was shalom was broken. Peace with God was broken. And so peace on earth was broken. And it's this long story of God redeeming that, restoring perfect peace both in the hearts and minds of men and women and in the world itself. So hence then, what do we see at the new creation when sin is finally eradicated? We see perfect peace, perfect shalom is what we see. So their source of sustaining peace and well-being isn't found in their circumstances changing for the better. That's not the source. That's not what Paul says. I'm going to pray that your circumstances would change so you would have perfect peace. No. Instead, their source of sustaining peace and well-being and wholeness within their hearts and minds as they live within a sin-broken and devastated and disordered world is found in God's grace-saturated love and action for them. God himself. God himself is the source of peace. God himself. Sustaining them until Christ the King returns for them and brings perfect peace in the new creation. He, He is their faithfully flowing wellspring of life and peace in the midst of the desert wilderness of the world in which they live. Jerry Bridges, I encourage you to read. Anything he's written <laughs> says this. He's no, no longer alive, but he's a precious saint. The Bible is full of God's promises to never forsake us, to give us peace in times of difficult circumstances, to cause 
all circumstances to work together for our good. And finally, to bring us safely home to glory. Not one of those promises is dependent upon our performance. They are all dependent on the grace of God given to us through Jesus Christ. It is grace that saves us and grace that sustains us. Paul is both pointing these afflicted Christians to their source of sustainment and asking the source, God himself, to graciously act for their whole good of his beloved people, to pour out upon them his grace and peace. Third, Paul gives thanks to God for the church's growth in the midst of trial. The church's growth in the midst of trial. Verse three, he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Often, it's it's hard for us to see the good God is doing in and among us in the midst of trial. We've talked about that before. It is so hard for us to see the good of what God is doing. And having a friend come alongside and help us to see what's really happening can be so helpful and an incredible encouragement to the Christian. Many of you know this, and some of you I know visiting, some of you are new to the church. A year and a half ago, I was hit with with (laughs) the most overwhelming health issues I have ever had in my life. A year and a half ago. And they made me incredibly weak, where I just had these moments of weakness, just incredible weakness and dizziness. And... I was hit by that and and just completely caught off guard. I was used to being a guy just kind of always running and going and lots of energy and, um, and then just stopped, just stopped. It was crushing to me. It was crushing. And there were times I remember just asking friends. I remember, I remember just, just saying, help me see what good is in this. Help me to see what good God is doing in me right now. Because it's hard to see. The the clouds of affliction, they're like dark clouds of affliction kind of come over you. It is hard to see. And we need someone who's not in the clouds of affliction to speak in and say, here's what God is doing. Here's what I see God is doing. Here's what I see God is growing in you the good God is doing. Precious saints, I remember just being heartbroken in many in in those moments, knowing God is good, but, but Lord, I'm having trouble seeing it. Friend, help me to see what good God is doing. And precious saints, there were many in this room who helped me see the good of what God was growing in me in the midst of the most difficult trial of my life. I'm so grateful. That's what Paul does here. That's what Paul does here. From, from a distance, he's watching this spiritually young church. Remember, they're young believers. They're new believers. This young church go through all sorts of affliction and trials. 
And he sees how God is at work growing them in the midst of the harshest conditions possible. And he highlights the good God is doing and gives thanks to God for it. Right. That's what he does in this verse. Right. That's what he says here. He gives thanks to God because their faith is growing abundantly and their love for one another is increasing. God is growing them in spiritual maturity in the midst of physical affliction. That is often the equation God employs for his people. That is often the equation God employs for us, precious saints. Growing in spiritual maturity in the midst of physical affliction. Paul sees the good God is doing and he lets them know it. Helping them see through the clouds of affliction. Helping them to know just what God is doing. Helping them to grow and then find encouragement. Paul called them at the end of his first letter to give thanks in all circumstances. Well, their circumstances are terrible, right? And so you could almost leave those moments like, how do I do that? Give thanks in all circumstances? How do I do that? Well, here's what Paul does. Paul now models to them what that actually looks like. How do we give thanks in the midst of circumstances when those circumstances are terrible? Because the God who Psalm 119 declares is good and does good, he is still actively doing good in and through the Christian. And that good often looks like growth in the Christian life. See, the prosperity gospel says good is only escape from the trial, right? The good is only always healing. The good is only always never being afflicted. That's not what we see in the Bible, saints. God uses the trial, uses the heartache for his glory and to grow within us good things. And you know what? It actually brings him more glory. Because how do good things grow in the midst of difficult things? Only by a sovereign and good God. Only by a miraculous hand working the plow, growing good things. It actually brings him more glory to do good things in the midst of trial. So you see it all throughout the scripture. All throughout the scripture. Paul is wanting them to see God is doing good things. He is working to grow them in knowing him, in trusting him. He wants us to trust him, saints. This morning, I, I'll say in our confession moment, that I just, that's one thing. Lord, I, I, I'm sorry when I don't trust you like I should. I lean upon my own understanding Help me to trust you more. He wants his saints to trust him. He wants us to love him most, right? He wants to make true what's in the word. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we can't do that when we love money. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. We can't do that when I love being noticed by people. I can't do that when I love my comfort. I can't do that. And so he's using those moments to cultivate within us a true love, 
loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your whole being. He wants it all. He's working to grow us in knowing him and trusting him and loving him more and more and ultimately to be conformed more and more into the image of his son. And that is a good work. That is worth giving thanks for. So hence the give thanks in all circumstances. The grace that saves us, sustains us, and is the grace that is transforming us. God is growing good things in his people. Last, we see Paul publicly, publicly celebrate the church's perseverance in the midst of trial. Verse four, he says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul, I love it. I love it. Paul had no problem publicly celebrating or boasting in the good of what was happening in and through the church, did he? No problem. No problem with boasting and celebrating what good God was doing. In this case, he's celebrating the enduring faith of the church in the midst of persecutions and affliction. The church is persevering. And so Paul is celebrating. He can't contain himself from celebrating the good of what he's seeing. He's even he's even sharing it with other churches. Precious saints, I feel like I could join in with Paul. Paul is light years beyond me, but I feel like I could share that with you, Paul. I share that with you. I look at what you're doing in the church body among us. When I talk to other pastors and sovereign grace, I am so encouraged and boasting in the good of what God is doing among us, precious saints. My heart is full. When I think about you, it's like I, it, this is not just some, I'm, I'm not just, you know, flattering you. I, I'm amazed when you show up every Sunday. I, I really am. I really am. I am amazed to see you walk in and to hear you sing. To hear you praise God, to hear you pray. And I look and I remember how the Lord, the Lord first, there was just a few of us. And we're still a little church, but I am amazed at what God has done and what God is doing in your lives. I'm amazed to hear some of you, when you first came, you honestly said, I have no idea what you're talking about when you talk about grace. And now I hear you say, oh, let me point out an evidence of grace in you. Let me celebrate God's grace. I hear you highlight God's grace. I hear you talk about God in ways maybe that are different than when you first came. I see all of that and I, I feel that from you and I, I am amazed and I can't help but boast in what God is doing in you and through you. Sometimes we can be guarded from giving encouragement to people. Sometimes we feel uncomfortable, especially public encouragement. But Paul commanded the church in 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 11, to do this, to encourage one another 
and builds one another up. There is to be a sweet aroma of encouragement in and among the church. Not some silly, not some silly, like, hey, that's a nice dress, you know, or that's a nice haircut. That, that's a kind thing to say. We should be kind to one another, right? Be kind. Keep being kind. If you compliment someone's hair, that's, keep doing it. That's not the biblical aim of encouragement, though. If we're just merely doing that, we fall short. We're talking about encouragement that helps one another see that God is at work in one another's lives. Helping one another see, just tuck that away in your heart. What is encouragement? Helping one another see how God is at work in one another's lives. Paul talks about boasting 35 times in his letters. Some of those times are negative things. Some of them are positive things. But here's what's clear. Anytime he is celebrating someone doing something good, it's attached to an understanding that they are only able to do that something good because God is first doing something good in them. That's built into his boasting. How I'm boasting and then doing something good. How are they doing that something good? Because it is God who is first doing something good within them. That is tied and interwoven into Paul's boasting. He is, we, we say this all the time. He is seeing and celebrating God's grace. Seeing and celebrating God's grace. And he does it repeatedly. You may even be thinking right now, we've heard this before. You're right. Because he does it so often. And that is the point. Are we known? Paul is known for seeing and celebrating God's grace. Are we known? Precious saint, is your life, are you known for seeing and celebrating God's grace? Almost unrelentingly. Or is it always the black dot on the wall, right? That's great, but look at that. Everywhere you turn. Precious saints, we we can't fool ourselves thinking churches don't deal with that kind of thing. They do. They do, and it kills churches. Because rather than seeing and celebrating God at work in one another and letting one another know it, it's like attacking one another constantly. My girls have this thing that we do called hug attack. And Susano has picked it up. So this morning he said, hug attack. And he gave me a hug. My girls love that hug attack. And I love it. I love that hug attack. I think that captures the Estrada home well. Hug attack. Oh man. We're, how healthy the church would be if, if our sense of attacking was like that. <laughs> how healthy would the church be? And glad. Paul knows if there's anything good happening in them, it's because there is first a God doing something good in them. And so he has no reservations celebrating that and pointing that out. So Paul has no problem celebrating their steadfastness, he says, because he knows it is God's steadfast love sustaining them. Paul has no hesitation celebrating their endurance because he knows it is God's enduring grace that is enabling them. He has no problem celebrating their faithful perseverance Because he knows it is God's faithful perseverance to keep them, right? 
And that is true of us in this room. When Paul sees any good in the church, he is quick to encourage, knowing it is God bringing about the good. So then when we see any good in the church, we should be quick to encourage, knowing it is God bringing about that good. And when we come alongside hurting Christians, hurting precious saints who are beloved of the Lord, our first response should not be like Job's brethren. Why are you going through this? What sin have you done? Now, there may be sin to address, but that's where Job's friends missed it. They forgot that there's a sovereign God accomplishing a whole lot of good, even in the midst of trial. So then, shouldn't we aim when we come alongside one another as we're hurting and it's difficult? Shouldn't we aim to help them see where God is doing good? Maybe you've wondered, how can I care for people? I don't know how to care for people. I don't know how to come alongside people. I'll just leave that to the professionals. No, let's simplify it this way. What is biblical encouragement? Helping one another see what God is doing, where God is at work, what good God is doing. Make that your aim. When you go to lunch with precious saints, when you're, when you're on a phone call with them to pray for them, as you're walking through, helping in parenting, whatever it may be, how can they see God is at work? And you know what that's going to do? That's going to give us eyes to see. Eyes to see God doing good. That's going to affect your own heart as you endure trials. And that's going to begin to cultivate in this church an aroma of encouragement that will help this church endure trials together. So in light of that, I think you could say that a church, a church with an aroma of encouragement that is constantly giving and receiving encouragement like what Paul did here among one another, they will be a glad and thankful and joyful church despite their circumstances because they will be aware that God is at work still among us. So the aim then is, Lord, make us a church with an aroma of encouragement. Make us a church who sees and celebrates you at work unrelentingly. The Lord, I think, was wanting to accomplish that in the church at Thessalonica. I think the Lord wants to encourage that and accomplish that and cultivate that within us here, Mission City Fellowship. To be a glad, encouraged, comforted, assured people, even in the midst of trial, because we are freshly aware of the identity of Christ and our identity in God and his saving, sustaining and transforming grace at work among us. Amen. Let's pray.